So the text that I have been given today is Matthew 15 and 16 in its totality. I won't be preaching from that whole piece, but I will be focusing on the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So the verses that are up here will be just a small piece of that. But I'd encourage you, if you're listening on the podcast or if you're here, of course, to read through Matthew, uh, through Mark chapters 15 and 16 and to see how this fits within the whole context of that. I think we're all familiar with that story, but um, just to get us focused in on this, uh, I'll read from the uh, scriptures here, starting at verse 16 in chapter 15. Then the soldiers led Jesus into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck his head with a reed, and they spat upon him, and they knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and they put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. And now skipping to the resurrection in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might go to anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place that they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out, and they fled from the tomb for terror and amazement which had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we jump in. Um, and, and just to, to note, since this is such a long passage, I'll be looking at it from uh, one of the kind of summation chapters, which happens across all the Gospels. It happens in Mark uh, three times. So I'll be preaching from 1032 through 34, which encapsulates the, the resurrection and the crucifixion and how God knew about this from the beginning. So let's pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We're all familiar with this from Genesis 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And I love that verse, but it also perplexes me when I come to a verse like that because I think about a world that's marked by endless war and disease and destruction and death 
and disappointment and devastation of every kind. And I think, how is this world good? You know what I mean? How is this world good? And I know that was before the fall, technically. But it's hard for me as a Christian to read that and to reckon with the world as it is and to say, maybe it was good, but it ain't good no more. What is going on with the world? If we look at it from the Gospel of John, the beloved verse from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Why did God so love this world? I mean, look at this world. Look at everything that this world has done. Look at what it did to the Savior. What is it about this world in its unlovable nature that God would do that for us? Have you ever thought about that? And so what I want to focus on today is when we come to a text on the crucifixion and the resurrection, to say what is the purpose and necessity of the cross and the resurrection? Why the cross? Why the resurrection? Why those things? If God so loved the world, why? And how does that fix it? That's where I want to go today by coming at this through Matthew 10, verse 32 to 34, which encapsulates everything we read. I'm just going to read that, those verses, and then we'll dive in. This is before Jesus is crucified. They're going on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid, and he took the twelve, and he began to say what was going to happen, what we've just heard. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. In the account from the Gospel of Luke, it says they didn't understand, because this occurs in Luke and Matthew and Mark. It says they didn't understand what he said. It was hidden from them. Think about this. Now, since we're on such a positive note, um, I, I do, I'm not this kind of the glass is half empty type of guy. If anything, I, I usually am thinking the glass is half full. And there are times when I say, how could God so love this world? And there's other times I say, how could God not love this world? Have you ever had those moments? It could be for you when you're looking out at the beautiful ocean, the endless sea. Whenever I go to Calandra, I just stand there and go, thank you, Lord. And my wife is like, you look like a crazy person. <laughs> like, I love the ocean. I'm like the expanse and God is real and everything is beautiful and everything's connected and all that stuff. So I'm basically a hippie type Jesus person on most days. For you, it might be just, you know, relaxing and seeing those kind of lucid moments that go in slow motion when you see your kids running and you go, there's something profoundly beautiful about life. It's loaded with significance. It's loaded with meaning. You can feel it in your blood. It's real. I had one of those moments, strangely enough, uh, down the street at Tuong State School. They had a movie night. Uh, and I said, well, okay, how did that work there? It was just this Queensland beautiful night. We can get storms and we can get winds at this time of year, but you get those nights that are so beautiful. They just take your breath away. You could just sit outside forever. And they had a movie night, and everybody from the community came, and everyone's got their kids, and they're putting down their blankets, and I just came right over from work. And we, it was going to be Lego Movie 2, Beautiful, awesome movie if you haven't seen it. <laughs> so, I mean, it just, again, puts your faith back in humanity. You go, they've created something like this. Surely this will be in the new creation. <laughs> so you should see that movie if you haven't seen it. No spoilers. 
But it was just one of these nights where everything, I mean, the wind was blowing just enough so that the trees are rubbing against each other, making that kind of lush, relaxing sound. And popping out of the green, you see the jacaranda tree is just brilliantly purple. And your heart goes, oh, there is a God. What's that going to sound like on the podcast? <laughs> I, just, I just punched the mic. Uh, so that sort of thing grabs me, and it makes me say, man, how could God not so love this world? Right? How could God not love a world where this is here. But then, again, you think of the brokenness. It pops back in. A lot of times, that that beauty can kind of seduce us and distract us and delude us, and we can look only at the beauty, but we want to take the beauty without the brokenness. But I think that what we come to when we have a cross and a resurrection, a Savior who's spit on in the face, put on a crown of thorns, and nailed to a cross, is that there is great beauty in this life, and it is good not to be sort of the old curmudgeon Christian who sits in the sidelines saying, everything is bad, God is wrathful, he hates everything, (laughs) right? We all know those kind of Christians, but at the other side of it, there's the kind of glass is not only half full, it's overflowing every day, life is beautiful, there's nothing wrong, and then you can't make sense of a cross and a resurrection because you haven't thought much about sin and death and destruction. There's no explanation for this if sin isn't really bad, if brokenness isn't really bad. And what I want to argue today is that sin corrupts beauty. Death destroys beauty, but Jesus Christ restores beauty forever. And he expands beauty. And he takes it beyond our wildest expectations. Think of the most beautiful thing you can think of and seeing that exponentially expanded to the tune of infinity. That is what the gospel is about. It's not a kind of curmudgeonly, oh, the gospel. You have a cross and you have a resurrection because sin is that bad, but you have a cross and a resurrection because creation is meant to be that good. That's the message that we get to preach to people. And thanks be to God that I get to preach it today. It's also important, though, when we preach about the cross and the resurrection to say this isn't something that took God by surprise. And most of you know that from studying here. But it can kind of look like God had plan A in the Old Testament. And boy, that didn't go so well. So then he decided, I know, I'll send Jesus in a manger and crucify him, which again is, you go, how does that work? So what I want to first argue is that this is part of God's sovereign plan from the beginning. It's not something that snuck up on God and surprised him. Let me read the verse. It says, verse 33 in Mark chapter 10. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is telling his disciples this five chapters before it actually happens. You say, that's pretty good predictability, Jesus. He knows what's happening. But actually, if you read the Gospel of Luke from chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke is, is quite long. Right? It's, long, it's, it's longer than the, much longer than the Gospel of Mark. From chapter 9 on, the entire Gospel is structured. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He set his face on Jerusalem. And he kept going to Jerusalem where he'd be crucified. And if you read the Gospel of Luke seven times, that theme happens. Here we see it three times happening. But in the Gospel of Luke, it's even more prevalent. So this is something that the Gospel writers were aware of. It isn't something that snuck up on God. It's something that God had sovereignly planned from the beginning. Now, that both solves some problems and creates problems. 
The Old Testament as well, if you'd have taken Paul's classes, if you listen to the Old Testament Trinity on Tap short course, that's Trinity on Tap, uh, trinity.edu.au, something like that. Um, <laughs> Google it. Um, product placement. Uh, if, if you've read that, and I think, Paul, you actually talk about this in that, we don't have to wait to the New Testament to get this plan. If you look in Genesis chapter 15, we see a sort of proto-evangelium, meaning a first kind of gospel. And what we see is, in the ancient world, they would cut animals and cut things when you would make a covenant. Something would literally be cut. And what do you see? You see an animal cut in half. Abram's put to sleep. You don't have to turn to it because it would take too long. But the, the two parties of a covenant would pass through the split animal to indicate what's going to happen if you break the covenant. Is it going to be good for you? No. You're going to be like this dead animal on the ground. You're going to receive the covenant curses. Who goes through the split animal in the book of Genesis way before Jesus is on the scene? Abram's put into a deep sleep. The Spirit of God moves through. And see, we have stuff like this throughout the entire Old Testament that the before Jesus arrived on the scene, God was predicting, God was planning to take the covenant curses of sin and separation and death on himself. God walked through the split animal. God predestined himself to take our curse so that we could have his blessing. You see this in the book of Genesis. You see it in Isaiah chapter 50 where the suffering servant is said to be spit on and mocked and flogged. In Isaiah 52 and 53, you see a suffering servant who's talked about in exactly the way we see here. Someone who goes like a sheep to the slaughter, who takes the sins of the world on himself and by whose wounds we are healed. In Zechariah 13, you see that the one who is pierced is the messianic figure who is going to bring salvation to the world. All woven throughout Genesis to Revelation, we have the providential plan of God to save the world through Jesus Christ. The cross didn't take God by surprise. The resurrection didn't take God's surprise. God had planned from the beginning to deal with the corrupting power of sin and the destructive power of death through the restorative, redemptive, reconciling power of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's had it from the beginning. So the first thing is the cross and the resurrection deals with sin, but it deals with sin in a way that has been foretold. The second thing I want to point out is that the cross and resurrection show us just how deadly sin is. And this will be the part that I want us to apply to ourselves. And when he hands them over to the Gentiles, the Jews, then they will mock him. Then they will spit on him. And they will flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Prophesying everything that actually happened. If you think of those words in chapter 10 and then the words that happened in chapter 15, it's astounding how close the connection is. What does this tell us? It tells us two things. It tells us what we already know from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 38, that the wages of sin is no big deal. That the wages of sin is God's love and he just forgives everything because he's like grandpa in the sky with a beard. And he doesn't really care about sin. It's just like a little, you stuff it up a little, but no problem. The wages of sin is death. And oftentimes in Christian circles, we forget that. We think of sin as, oh, it's just a little, don't do that again, slap on the wrist. 
but the Bible tells us that sin is so corrupting, it is a power that is so destructive, that the only way to take care of it is to kill it and to rise victorious over it. It cannot be dealt with. This is because, my friends, the gospel is not meant to be a philosophy merely, a worldview merely. It's not a worldview so much in the initial circumstance as it is a war. It is a war against the death and destruction and corruption that separates you from the beauty of life, that separates you from life eternal. And God enters into that. He doesn't solve the problem from a cosmic couch in heaven, from the comforts of his heavenly throne room. He enters into the suffering and conquers it. That's the only way, according to Scripture, that sin can be dealt with. Sin leads to death. There's no way around it. There is no other ideology. There is no other philosophy. There is no other anything that can take care of the problem that separates you from the principle of life and the people you love except for the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is no hope without Jesus. There is no gospel without Jesus. There's nothing better than Jesus. And there's nothing more deadly and destructive and corrupting than sin. And so one of the problems in the church is that we make light of sin. But when we don't talk much about sin, we won't make much of Jesus' cross and resurrection. Because there'll be no reason for it. and It'll appear to us to be absurd. The second thing is, not only that sin is deep and it destroys, which we know from Romans 6 and we know from 1 Corinthians 15, that it has a sting to it, that it takes us away from the people we love. It makes us reflect that it's not just that dictator over there or that bad person across the street or that other person. That implicated in the death of the Son of God is each and every human being, including all of us. The verses here in all of the Gospels talk about the Jews handing him over to the Gentiles. And the sum effect of that is to say, whether you're Jewish or whether you come from any of the other people groups, you are implicated in the sinful death of Jesus Christ. When, and, and, and think of it this way. When divinity comes into the midst of humanity, what do we do? We, do we welcome him? Come, Jesus! Come one, come all to the heavenly sausage sizzle that we're having here. Come see Lego Movie, which didn't exist back then. But Jesus knew it was gonna. Um, you know, no, we don't do that. When the Son of God, when God himself, when divinity itself comes into the midst of humanity, we spit in his face. We craft a crown of thorns and push it into his head. We mock him. We belittle him. We shout at him, and then we nail him to a tree. That is the depths of the human heart and the power of sin apart from the Holy Spirit. And we don't like to think about ourselves like that. I would ask you to do this, though. And this is something that's happened to me recently. Have you ever had periods of life when you get away from people and situations that were bad in your life? that were taking you down a path that you didn't want to go and that you knew if you kept going in that path, it was going to be a bad situation. You might be going through that now. You might have gone through it in the past. We all have, I think. And recently, uh, on social media, some people popped back up into my life and some really bad stuff has happened to them. These are people that I was really close with, hung out with all the time, and just was walking with them step in step. And I had this vision afterwards, and I've shared with some of you in my class, of... My family, all the people I love, all the things that I value, all the things that I cover up, the beauty that helps me cover up the brokenness. 
things that I cherish started disappearing around me. When I thought, if I had just gone that little sin and just walked a little bit off the path and just tried a little bit to go out of bounds, it's not a big deal, I stuff up a little, (laughs) whatever. No, if I had gone that way, my son doesn't exist. You see what I'm saying? No, if I had gone that way, my daughter doesn't exist. I never would have married my wife. What I'm trying to tell you is sin, I'm not trying to scare people, right? But trying to say the gravity of sin led to the cross and necessitated the resurrection. Without a huge view of sin, we can't have a large, beautiful view of who God is. And so for whatever that means for us, I think it's important to think of. You know, this verse ends in the Gospel of Luke with some additional information that we don't have. And who in here is taking my interpreting the New Testament class? Yeah. You're welcome. No. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I should be apologizing because you have two assessments coming up. Um, You've been doing some comparison of the Gospels, and maybe folks listening on the podcast will have done uh, comparisons of the Gospels before, and sometimes they're different, and there's additional information in one that's not in another, or something lacking in one that's not in another. At the end of this exact parallel verse in the Gospel of Luke, it says, the disciples walked away and they didn't understand. I think I mentioned that before, but that's only in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I'm going to pull that in here because I think it's important to what I'm talking about. Um, And just because, quite frankly, it will help us to come out of the depths of sin back up into the beauty of life. They didn't understand what they had seen in the Gospel of Luke, it says. And it was hidden from them. I think it's pertinent that we're going to take communion today because in Luke, Luke chapter 24, those same words of understanding and knowing are used again. And when did they understand who Jesus was? It wasn't through any logical explanation. It wasn't even through some deep theological lesson. It said they knew him and they understood him through the breaking of bread. That's how they came to know Jesus. And then once the disciples on the Emmaus Road came to know Jesus, they said to themselves, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened to us the scriptures? I think that's pertinent because what that means for us as ministers and for us in the churches is that we often try to come up with all these plans. We come up with all these things that we can do to to fix the church, to help the church, to grow the church. And the, the message of the New Testament is you can't make sense of Jesus until he reveals himself to you through word, spirit, and I would say sacrament, if you will. In other words, the church needs to exist to bring people to know God, to open up Christ to people through the scriptures, which is one of the things we're trying to do here at Trinity College. And so what I want to end on as we think about the brokenness of this world, but also the beauty of this world, is that this destructive power of sin, this corrupting power of sin and death, yes, it is an element that we have in life, but it is also a beautiful thing that we can think about in life. And I've, I've just got a verse here, actually not a verse, a quote, which I don't usually put in sermons, but I've got a quote from American Beauty. Has anyone seen that movie? And what I like about this movie is, if you've seen it, you'll know, and I won't give, any, uh, give it away at all. It's a really dark movie. It's really, really dark. And the main character, Ricky Fitz, goes through uh, darkness before, darkness during, and has a dark ending in the movie. Okay. 
But there's this one scene where he sees this plastic bag blowing across, carried on by the wind. And it has that moment uh, of like that sort of lucid moment where everything makes sense. Where the world is very broken, but you see it's very beautiful. And you kind of see that hand in hand. And he says this kind of overdubbed over that scene. And just kind of hear what he says. I think it sums up what I'm trying to say. I realized that there was entire life behind things. And this incredibly benevolent force that wanted me to know that there was no reason to be afraid ever. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world, I feel like I can't take it in. And my heart is just going to cave in. What I love about that is, here's someone who's been totally broken by the world. But yet, he knows that, but he's enamored by the beauty of the world. And I think what the gospel tries to get at today is that, yes, sin corrupts, sin is real, death destroys. If we minimize that, we miss the gospel. But even though that is the case, in the midst of all that brokenness, there is a beautiful thing happening. God created the world very good. God is redeeming the world so that it will be beautiful and good forever. And so as we read about the cross and the resurrection, if we get sin, then we get the cross and the resurrection. But if we get beauty, then we get what God is up to in redemption. It's not just about saving you from some kind of legal infraction. It's about saying, it's about helping you to see the beauty that's already there and to expand that exponentially. And I think that can help us in a culture that's not willing to hear about ethics, that's not willing to hear about religion, but gets beauty. And Thomas Aquinas, who's a great theologian of the church, said, one of the ways that we can actually know God is by looking at beauty in the world. And so what I'd invite you to think about today is that this gospel might give us eyes to see not the world only as it is in its present brokenness, although that's true. And not that we would see the world only as it is in its partial beauty, although that is very true as well. But the the gospel would help us to understand what the world is meant to be in its future blessedness. It's not just its present brokenness, its partial beauty. It's the future blessedness that is actually breaking into the present through what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. This world is a beautiful place. It is also very broken. But Jesus Christ restores the beauty forever. Jesus Christ expands it. And I, I just want to invite you to be a part of that. And to see what you do as part of Jesus' work on bringing the beauty of the world outside of the grip of brokenness and sin and death. To restore it, to redeem it, to renew it, to reclaim it, and to say on the last day that it is all new, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me pray on that. Lord, Thank you in your word that you tell us that we don't have to wait for a new creation. There already is a new creation. Thank you in your word that you point us to the fact that sin is real and death is destructive, but Jesus has destroyed death. Thank you that you bring us to a meal where we can encounter you in the bread and the wine, but also to the Holy Scriptures, where we can see the weight of our own sin and the need for it to be destroyed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we seek to understand all the complexities of that more, let us never minimize sin, but let us also never obsess about it to the point that we miss the fact that you have made this world to be beautiful. And it is beautiful. 
We sense it, we know it, we love it, and we long to see it made complete. And so through us, help us be agents of that completeness. In Jesus' name, amen.